Second Corinthians 3.18 declares this, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in our time of worship by opening the word of God in your presence, that Lord, by your spirit, you would prepare us and by your spirit, you would speak to us and allow us to hear the voice of the living God saying things to us that we need to hear individually and collectively as a church family and group of believers here this day. So we ask, Lord, that you would bless your word and that you would speak to us and direct us through the remainder of our time. And we ask this together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, is it possible this morning that you have found yourself thinking or saying, I wish this area of my life could change? I wish I could change this thing about myself. I really don't know any person who doesn't wish that they could change something about their personality or their temperament or maybe some character trait that they dislike about themselves. And internal change is what matters most. Quite honestly, I can't promise you that you can change something about your physical attributes. Some of those things we have control over with diet and exercise and hair coloring and all these other things that nowadays we can do to ourselves. But internal change is really what matters most. And I want you to know that internal change is indeed possible. That is something that is absolutely possible. But the question becomes, where does real change come from? And that truth is actually found in verse 18 in our text this morning. It gives us that important answer. And so I encourage you, to focus in on what God is saying to us here in this verse. And it's why I wanted to take time to just meditate upon and chew upon and drill down in this one verse, because it is a very important paramount verse for us as New Testament believers in Jesus Christ. God's word is very clear on some things which are unquestionably God's will for us. A lot of times as Christians, we're always asking, what's God's will for me? Should I do this? Should I do that? Or, you know, should I pursue this? Or should I pursue that? And we're a lot of times trying to figure out what the will of God is. But there is a few things that the Bible is unquestionably clear about are absolutely the will of God for our lives. And one of them, as a Christian or a child of God, is that we would become more like God's son, Jesus. That is an absolute guarantee that that is the will of God. One of the ongoing processes in the life of every Christian is God is using all things in our lives, in our circumstances, in the experiences that we go through to basically take who we are naturally in all of our weaknesses and our shortcomings and our sinful condition and to try and use all of those things to make us more like God's son Jesus Christ. Romans 8 29 tells us that those that God foreknew that would become his children, that God has predestined us, listen, to be conformed into the image of his son. 
That is God's express purpose. The verse right before that is Romans 8, 28, where it tells us that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And sometimes we wonder, oh my goodness, how possibly could God use this for my good? I mean, I know the Bible says that, but how in the world could this be used for good? Well, maybe it'll make you a little bit more like Jesus. Maybe it may be difficult. Maybe you not see. We always think, well, God's going to work this for my good. So in the end, I'm going to be richer. Or in the end, this, this good natural circumstance is going to come about in an earthly way. And God's way of making all things work for the good may simply just be, the next verse, that it uses that very thing to make us a little bit more Christ-like and to get us a little bit more ready to meet Jesus and enter into eternal life. And that could be God's way of working something for the good. Because God's good and highest purpose is really to make us more like Jesus. But how does that come to pass? Well, this is what our text describes, how the process of change happens in our life where God makes us more like his son. Remember the backdrop we've seen so far in this chapter. Paul's been sharing here and talking about how the new covenant in Christ is far superior to the old covenant under the Mosaic law. Living under the Old Testament law reveals to mankind that we are a guilty, condemned sinner, but it offers no permanent solution for forgiveness. It also provides no power to change. However, the new covenant through Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross provides us a permanent guaranteed solution for forgiveness of all sin, that we simply receive forgiveness as a gift of Jesus's work, and he gives us a righteous standing before God He gives us a life that is lived out under grace and that is lived under the power of the Holy Spirit helping us to live the way God wants us to. So it assures us there is power to live the way that God desires for us. And he described how Moses, who had unique and special access, remember Paul talked about last time, he had unique special access into the presence of God that as a result of his time enjoying that privilege to be in God's presence, after being in God's presence, remember it said Moses' face was shining. He was radiating, if you would, the glory from being in God's presence. And so therefore Moses put a veil over his face to hide or to keep really a spiritual reality from being seen by the children of Israel. That spiritual reality was that that glory was always fading away. It wasn't permanent. It was a temporary glory. Now, even in the same way, he then used that picture to say that as that hindered a spiritual reality from being seen, he said that all of those who are still living in Judaism... The Jewish people nationally, the greater majority of them still living under the covenant of the law of Moses. He said in the same way, there's a a veil, a spiritual blindness over their eyes that is hindering them from seeing a spiritual reality. That Jesus of Nazareth was their Messiah and the Savior that God sent. And anyone who does not believe in Jesus Christ is living in that same spiritual blindness, the Bible teaches us. And that veil of spiritual blindness hinders or restricts people from an ability to see an important spiritual reality of their own need of salvation as a sinner before a holy God. And that Jesus is the solution and they need to humbly receive him as Savior and Lord. Yet there is hope if we humble ourselves admit our need of salvation, 
and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said last time, remember in verse 16, look at it. Nevertheless, despite the spiritual blindness, when one turns to the Lord, that is in faith, believing and receiving him as Savior, when one turns to the Lord, what does he say happens? The veil is taken away. That is, that spiritual blindness is removed in the conversion experience. That veil that was once hindering a person from seeing spiritually clear and blinding them is taken away when they truly have a spiritual salvation experience. God supernaturally opens their eyes and then they see the realities as they go from spiritual darkness to spiritual light. It's like pulling back a spiritual blindfold. That when a person chooses to receive Jesus, it's like God takes the blindfold off of their eyes and all of a sudden the lights are turned on. And now they see it all clearly that happens in conversion. And Paul declared, verse 17, what also happens besides the eyes being opened, he said, is that the Lord is the spirit. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That is liberation, freedom that's taking place. Jesus, who no longer lives here in a physical body now in the flesh, but having died, risen again from the dead and ascended back into heaven, said that he would remain with his followers. But how is he now with us as his followers? Not in the flesh, but he's with us spiritually as the spirit of the Lord is within each and every believer in Jesus Christ. So where is the spirit of the Lord at and at work? Well, inside every believer, that's where the spirit of the Lord is. And among or within among the church, the body of Christ, the church family. Then Paul said, wherever the spirit of the Lord is at work in the life of every Christian and among the church, there will be liberty, freedom taking place. Liberty from having to live under the regulations and rituals of the Mosaic law. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. And now as a church and as individual Christians, we don't have to live under rituals and requirements and legalistic rules. Instead, we're led by the spirit of the Lord ruling us from within and the spirit of the Lord showing us what is right and what is wrong and how to obey God's word and live it out. We've also been liberated from the power of Satan and sin ruling over us. When we turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away. We see clearly the shackles that we were in, and Jesus brings liberty by his spirit. He sets us free from the power of sin, dominating our lives and keeping us in bondage to fleshly desires and weaknesses. Romans chapter 8 declares it this way. It says, because you belong to Jesus, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies that we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us. By giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins, he did this so just as the requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us, who no longer now live to follow our sinful nature, but instead to follow the spirit of the Lord. So this is the glorious liberty and freedom that we have as those who are truly born again Christians who've accepted Jesus Christ into our lives as Savior and Lord, we are now led by the Spirit of the Lord, guiding us from within, 
He empowers us from within. He directs us from within. And he is, as we see in our text this morning, changing us from within as well. But how does that happen? Well, verse 18 tells us that reality he says, but we all with unveiled face, he used that same imagery again, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. So verse 18 gives us a beautiful Bible promise, a glorious promise to those of us who are children of God, that as we continually spend time seeking Jesus, we will be continually changed by the spirit of God, supernaturally transforming our lives from the inside out to make us more like God's son, Jesus Christ. God's process of change, we're gonna see, is not us trying to change once we become a Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian now. I guess I gotta change. I gotta stop talking like this and I gotta stop doing that and I gotta start doing this and I need to change this area of my character and I gotta be a little bit more loving and I gotta be a little less lustful and I gotta be a little less prideful and I gotta be a little bit more forgiving. And, and we think, okay, I, there's a lot of construction that's gotta go on here. A lot to change. Some of us try real hard to change before we came to Jesus. I tried that for about a six month period before I ever came to the Lord. I was trying to clean up my act. That was the most frustrating thing in the world. I kid you not, I used to get drunk on Saturday night and then go to church hungover on Sunday morning hoping I could change. In high school, I did it. Now my parents know, but it was out before that anyway. <laughs> Didn't work. Didn't work. I slipped into that Methodist church week after week. It did not work early Sunday. It just didn't happen because you can't change yourself. And even after you come to know Jesus Christ, you can't transform yourself to be like Jesus. But who is this promise for? Who's it made to? Well, look, first of all, verse 18, here's who this promise is for. He said is, is for we all, that is all of us, with unveiled face. He's using the image there of the prior verse, the context of referring to all believers who've truly turned unto the Lord to receive him and been converted. Remember second Corinthians, what did verse 16 say? Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. You become unveiled. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. There's the removal of the spiritual blindness and a condition of being blinded spiritually has now been removed. You know, it's very beautiful when you look at that term unveiled in the original language in the Greek. It speaks of experiencing a revelation. The idea is where at one point in time, something was hidden or covered like a statue with a, a drapery over it. And you can't see because it hasn't, the sheet hasn't been pulled away and it hasn't been revealed what's there. And this is the idea of, of unveiled faces is that we're able to see something clearly because that veil has been removed. It's been taken away. And now we can see something clearly that once we were hindered in our ability to see. A revelation has happened. That's what this is referring to here. To have an unveiled face. It pictures the spiritual condition and privilege of all true believers who've received Jesus Christ by turning to him. And now we see who Jesus is. Now we fully understand our, our, our condition spiritually and that he is the son of God and the savior for our sins. 
and the Lord who wants to rule over and be a part of our life. And it makes sense to us personally, right? I knew Christians before I got saved. It didn't make sense to me why they were the way that they were. But I'll tell you what, the day that I got saved, it all made sense real quick. Because the veil was pulled back. The the veil was taken off of my eyes. And all of a sudden, there was that revelation. You could see clearly it meant something to you personally. And the idea here of being an unveiled person with an unveiled face is nothing hindering or restricting, but having direct intimate experience with the Lord, where we can all come directly to the Lord ourselves and be face to face. And he grants us open personal experience. And think about that in, in the contrast of what Paul's talking about contextually here. Under the old covenant of the Mosaic law with Moses, remember, only select privileged people had access to the presence of God, right? Moses could go into the presence of the Lord. The high priest could go enter into the presence of the Lord, but everybody couldn't do that. There was only select privileged people. But look what happens under the New Testament. Under the new covenant finished work of Jesus Christ, he says there in verse 18, we all with unveiled faces. Now we all with unveiled faces, our eyes open. God's heart is that each individual have opportunity to know him in a close way. And we all have direct access right into his glorious presence. I don't need to go through a church. I don't need to go through a pastor. I don't need to go through a priest. I don't need to go through anybody. I come to God directly through Jesus. And we all by faith can have that same access As the veil has been lifted, the day that we married Christ, it's like the day we chose to turn to Jesus in marriage, the veil was lifted just like it is right off the bride and true intimacy really began with God as the veil was taken away. Remember in the temple in the Old Testament, there was that thick veil barrier that restricted from going to the rear room of the temple where the glory and the presence of God was manifested and it restricted. And the idea was you could not just enter directly into the presence of God. And when Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what the gospels tell us happened? It says that veil was rent from top to bottom, not from bottom to top, from top to bottom. There was no priest in there on a ladder cutting up there with a big set of shears, getting rid of that veil. God reached down and he ripped open the veil and said, finally, no more separation. This is what I've always wanted. Every single person can come directly to me through my son now and have experience with me. Jesus took away the separation spiritually and we all now have direct access. No person in the family of God has special privileges that other don't to the presence of God. We all have the same access, equal opportunity to draw near. And so the Bible says, capitalize on that. You have access to almighty God yourself. Capitalize on that. Hebrews 4 verse 16 says it this way. Speaking of the access Jesus has made. Let us, all of us, therefore, come boldly, confidently to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He says, let us do this. It's a throne of grace and we can come confidently directly to that throne of grace to get the help that we each need. And what's our part in experiencing this promise of God in verse 18 here to be supernaturally changed? Oh, I want to change. I want to change. What's my part? Well, since nothing's hindering or restricting us now as a spiritual worshiper, he says what our part is is simply this. Verse 18, look at it. He says, we are to be beholding the glory of the Lord. 
That's our part, to be beholding the glory of the Lord. And to behold, and that term, if you look at it there, it means more than just a one-time look, like in salvation, or a periodic glance every once in a while. To behold something speaks of a continual gaze upon it, where you're constantly amazed by it. You can't stop looking at it. It's just something so incredible. It's kind of like when I first met my wife. Could just kept beholding her. Could not get my eyes off of her. It wasn't a one-time glance. And every time I look, I would go, wow. And to this day still, she just turned 50. We've been married almost 27 years. I'm still beholding going, whoa. That's the idea with Jesus. And think about it. You can never exhaust everything to see about Jesus. For all of eternity, we'll be seeing more about Jesus. Beholding him, gazing upon him. That's the idea here is that we're to be looking more deeply at Jesus, studying him, looking to him. What are Christians to be beholding? He says very clearly, not this, that, books, Jesus. Beholding the glory of the Lord. That is what we are to be intently considering and looking at if we want to change. If we genuinely want to change. I got this really great book, man. It changed my life. Not as good as what I've heard about. That book may have some good ideas. But that book ain't changing your life. Jesus will change people's lives. He says we're to be holding the glory of our Lord. That is the glorious excellence of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 1 tells us all the greatness of God and the glory of God was in Jesus. Hebrews 1 says in past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Because the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When Jesus died and rose again, he rose, the Bible says, in power and great glory. When he comes back, he's coming in power and great glory. The glory of the Lord is everything that is great and awesome and glorious about Jesus. And this is something, as I said, we can never exhaust to spend time admiring him, being astonished and amazed by him. You can never exhaust that. There's always more to see, always more to discover. And that word beholding is actually, if you look at the the tense of it, it's actually in the present tense. The idea is an ongoing gaze, continually doing subs. Hebrews 12 tells us that we should fix our eyes on Jesus. The psalmist tells us that we should be beholding the beauty of the Lord. And look, my question to you this morning is, you know, as we prepare to share communion here in a few moments, is do inventory. In your life recently, do you kind of just use Jesus as an emergency service? He's, he's kind of like the EMS unit. When there's really a critical matter and you can't fix it, and no one else can solve it, and then your life really gets desperate, you always remember to call 911 Jesus. Well, he'll show up. But there's something a little bit deeper than that God wants for us. Or do you periodically, just when it's convenient, spend time in the presence of the Lord? When it's convenient, when you have a little excess time, or are we really taking times to be intentional, to disconnect from other worldly pursuits and all this world offers us to do, and really be intentional about sitting and spending time in the presence of our Savior? whether it's alone, whether it's when the people of God gather together like this to worship and seek the Lord together, that's what we should be doing. That's really what God's plan is, that we would always continually be beholding 
the glory of the Lord, looking to him, letting him blow our minds about how wonderful that he really is. That's where this promise comes to pass if we're doing that. And how are we to behold Jesus? Verse 18 tells us, look what he says. How do you go about beholding Jesus? He says there, verse 18, as in a mirror. Now that's an interesting analogy. As in a mirror beholding the glory of the Lord. What does a mirror do? It shows a reflection of your true condition. It reveals things so that you can understand if changes are needed. So as we behold the glory of Jesus, he's the standard, right? And as we see the standard looking at Jesus like a reflection come back to us, he reveals our condition in comparison to himself. See, we're not really supposed to be looking at comparing to this person, comparing to that person, comparing to most other Christians or comparing to the, you know, the, the, the real jerk that I work with. I mean, I'm not like him. That's the wrong standard. The standard is, is the revelation of beholding as in a mirror of the glory of the Lord. The standard is Jesus. And, and look, I, I don't know about you. I mean, I'm not out doing stupid things and looking at pornography and getting drunk, but I can tell you this, and I realize again this week, I, I am very, very unchristlike still. And I am consciously aware that there are many areas of my life that are not like Jesus. And that needs to change because that's the standard. That's what God's aiming at. And God help us if we're just apathetic. Well, I'm not like this. I'm not like that. But I'm nothing like Jesus still. Thankfully, there's a process going on. The verse tells us that. But that's the standard, that revelation of beholding the Lord as in a mirror, he says. And again, ancient mirrors in that day were not real clear. They were typically made of brass, unlike the wonderful mirrors we have today. So you really had to look deeply in an ancient mirror to, to get a reflection. You couldn't just kind of glance and get a nice, you had to really look in deeply to see the reflection. I think that's what we need to do to, to discipline ourselves. Say, you know, I really need to, to really look and seek and get to know my Lord and see what he's like and let that reflection do what it does in my heart as his follower. And the reference to looking upon the Lord as in a mirror could also, I think, indicate one of the main ways how this is done, as in a mirror. What does James chapter 1 tell us? James chapter 1 tells us that the word of God, God's word, is like a spiritual mirror that reveals things to us. So it could be that one of the chief ways of how this is done, beholding the Lord, how we spend time getting to know the Lord is seeing and hearing things from him by spending time looking intently into the word of God, which the Bible also says is like a mirror. As the word of God reveals things to us about the Lord and what Jesus is like and what his will is and what his ways are, right? Doesn't Jesus himself say that? John chapter five, Jesus says, the scriptures testify of me, he said. In Luke 24, it tells us Jesus expounded all things from the Old Testament concerning himself. That is how the scripture spoke about him. The Bible declares to us that, lo, in the volume of this book, it is written about Jesus. The greatest revelation, if you want to see Jesus clearly, if I want to know Jesus fully, do you know where the greatest revelation of that comes from? Not experiences, not other people's testimonies. It's looking into the word of God and letting God's word reveal to you who Jesus is, what Jesus is truly like. This is the greatest mirror to reveal what Jesus is like. It will give you the greatest revelation 
of our Lord and letting the mirror of God's word reveal that. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is to be spending time with the Lord, just being in his presence, beholding us in a mirror, the glory of our Lord. We're just to be engaging in personal worship through prayer, through singing and praising the Lord, through reading and meditating and learning on scripture. And the wonderful thing is as we do this, the Bible's saying that's where change happens. As we're seeking the Lord, spending time with the Lord, that's where change starts to happen in our life supernaturally. Instead of trying to change ourselves through fleshly effort or by guilt motivating us to change, because there's all types of things that can motivate change, right? People make you feel bad about yourself, you try and change. You feel guilty because of a certain thing about your life, you try and change. You just want to, in good intention, be different, you try and change. But the wonderful thing is God's plan for change is being transformed, not by trying to reform yourself, but by simply spending time relationally with Jesus, and then God changes you. God begins to bring that process. Notice, who brings the change? Well, he says it in the verse there. You couldn't get it more clearly. We are being transformed. How? From glory to glory into his image by the spirit of the Lord. As we continually spend time in his presence, we are being transformed into his same image, the Bible says, from glory to glory. That is one degree of glory to a greater degree of glory to a greater degree of glory. True spiritual change for the Christian is not about working to fix ourselves. I cannot emphasize that enough. Trying to make ourselves a better person, resolving to be different, to become better, that is a vain effort. It's always going to fail, and it's constantly going to frustrate us because it will never ultimately be fruitful. But here he says we are changed by him. Notice it says we are being transformed. In other words, it's a process that he's doing in your life. It's a process that he's doing, transforming us as he works in our lives. That word transformed is where we get our English word. We know metamorphosis, right? And metamorphosis is what? It's inward change that produces outward change. It's change from the inside out. It's when something happens in the DNA of a life form where inner transformation in the inner person brings about outward changes. The best example we all know is where this ugly little caterpillar that can do nothing but crawl along is transformed, metamorphosis, into this, what, beautiful butterfly that can soar and can do much greater things. And this is a picture of that spiritual metamorphosis. It's similar to what happens as we're being transformed. We go from being these ugly, weak, struggling people to being transformed as his process is changing us to become a more Christ-like person who walks in powerful victory. And notice, please, notice it is a process, process, Again, look at the actual text. What does it say? It says we are being transformed. It doesn't say we have been transformed. Underline that. We're being transformed. Not that we've been transformed. We have been saved. We have been converted. We have been redeemed. We have been born again. We have been declared righteous before God. That's justification. Thanks be to God that happened at our salvation moment. But now the Bible says there's this thing called sanctification, which is an ongoing, continuous, lifelong process. 
of being set apart where we become more Christ-like. We turn from being rebellious sinners to honorable sons and daughters growing in holiness and righteousness. Transformation of a life, life change, hear me, is a lifelong process. And that is very important to remember in two ways. First of all, be patient and gracious with yourself or you're going to get really discouraged. You are being transformed. You haven't been transformed. You've been saved. But now you're being transformed to the day you enter into the glory of Jesus, literally in heaven. It's a process. God's in the process. He's making it happen. Don't get discouraged. You're being transformed. And also, we need to be patient and gracious with other people to realize they're being transformed. They haven't been transformed. And a lot of times, one of the greatest mistakes we make, even as Christians among one another, is we become so overly critical because we become frustrated with a person. Why do they still act like that? Why is that part of their personality still like that? Because they're being transformed. You haven't been transformed. Get off their back. You're being transformed, and they're being transformed. And there's a great mark of maturity when we come to a place to realize my job is to love people. God's job is to change people. I think when I was a younger Christian, I was much more quick to identify things in people's lives. Nowadays, I just quietly rejoice in the fact that he who began a good work in people will be faithful to complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. And I just, they're growing. They're growing. I've been growing. People probably think the same thing about me. I wish Tony would just... Hey, sorry, it's a process. It's a process. You pray for me, I pray for you. We all win in the end. What's the goal? There it is, to be formed into his image. That's the goal. God's aiming at making us more like Jesus, that we would represent his son better as Christ followers. And where does the power to change come from? Finally, verse 18 Don't miss it. Where's the power to change come from? Because here's what I know and here's what you know this morning. Change is hard. It's hard to change, man. But where does the power come from? There he says it. We're being transformed and changed by the spirit of the Lord, by the miraculous power of the spirit. He is doing in us what we cannot do in ourselves. Zechariah 4, God declares, it's not by human might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. It's not about making a resolution. It's not about trying really hard to reform your own behavior. And I'll tell you, that oftentimes just leads to pride. Because then people do what? We hear them say, I'm really cleaned up my act. Had to get my life together. I got my life together now, man. You got your life together? That sounds a little arrogant to me. I know I didn't get my life together. And sadly, I tell you, when when that's the mentality, we can reform ourselves and get our life together. The other thing is that rarely ever lasts because it depends on our strength and our human will. And you may have your life together and then a week from now, a month from now, that's going to fall apart because you put it together. We don't want to get our life together. We want to get Jesus changing our life because then it is true, powerful, genuine transformation that happens inwardly because it's a metamorphosis. Because he changes my DNA spiritually. He changes our spirit inwardly. By the spirit of the Lord, he gives us different desires. He takes away the wrong and rotten desires and he gives us right desires. 
He gives us better appetites. He controls us more from within. And his nature becomes more predominant. And the more we decrease, the more he increases. And that's permanent, true change and transformation as we get more and more like Jesus. Again, this happens just a natural process of seeking and worshiping the Lord by his spirit transforming you and me little by little by little by little from glory to glory to glory until we enter his glorious presence. Spiritual development is a process. There are no shortcuts. It's a lifelong process, but there is a proper way, and it's not by working hard to be a better person. Instead, it is realizing I need to spend more time with the best person. Because if I can spend more time with the best person, maybe I'll start to be a little bit more like him. Maybe something will start to happen when I'll start to be more like him. And the wonderful thing is, and I don't even have to do that process. He's changing me. I'm just spending time with him, worshiping him, seeking him. And the wonderful thing is, is we just seek the Lord. The spirit brings the changes and he changes us. And he transforms us. Look how wonderful. I'm not what I'm going to be. You're not what you're going to be. But thanks be to God, we're not what we were, right? Because we're in process and he's changing us and there's grace when we fail. And we know, Lord, thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you're working in my life. Let's stand together.